wasn't that precious. <clears throat> Just makes you want to smile, doesn't it? I think it makes the Lord smile too. Turn your Bibles, please, to Joshua in chapter 3. God is leading his people into the promised land. And now they've come to the Jordan River, and they're going to cross over to the other side to get into the land which God promised them. If you did not get a handout for tonight's study, if you hold your hand up, Brother Phil, bring it to you right where you're at. A handout for tonight's study. He'll make sure that you got one. So tonight we're talking about the crossing of the Jordan. Hope you got your notes there. You can write down a few thoughts I want to share with you prior to our communion and Lord's Supper tonight. We're going to begin, number one, talking about the preparation of the crossing. God prepares his people to cross over to the other side. And one thing he tells them to do is he told his people to stay back. Look in verse 3 again, Joshua chapter 1, verse 3. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests, the Levites, bearing it, then you shall remove from your place and go after it. But verse 4, Yet there shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Come not near unto it, that you may know the way by which you must go, for you have not passed this way before. Interesting, the 2,000 cubits right at 3,000 feet. This is over a half a mile that they're to stand back and wait to follow the ark across the um, Jordan River. They will stand back by a space of 3,000 feet. Now, why did God tell them to do that? Why did God say, stand back? Why not just go ahead and follow it? Remember, there was right at 2 million Jews uh, led out of Egypt now to cross the Jordan River. And the first reason he told them to stand back, to keep your distance, is because of the due to the unfamiliar territory and unaccustomed manner. He told them to stay back due to the unfamiliar territory and the unaccustomed manner. Unfamiliar territory, he says in verse 4, the latter part, come not near unto it that you may know the way by which ye must go, for ye have not passed this way before. The distance was essential so that the largest possible number of uh, the great population could see the ark. And God was about to lead them over unfamiliar ground, over a way they had not taken before. It was a new territory, so without the Lord's guidance and leadership, the people would not know where to go. So they had to stand back because there's so many of them, they had to be able to see the ark to be able to follow it across the Jordan River. It was an unfamiliar territory. But number two, the second uh, uh, part of that, it was also an unaccustomed manner. Now, God's going to lead them across the Jordan River by the ark. They were to watch the ark and follow that. Now, how did God lead them prior to that? Two different ways. He led them by day by a pillar of cloud and by night by a pillar of what? A fire. That was what they were accustomed to. They would follow the cloud by uh, day and follow the cloud by night. But now if something's changed, they're to follow the ark. Keep their eye on the ark and follow the other side. By the way, how do you do? How well do you do with change? Do you like change? The older I get, the less I like change. And But God works change in our hearts to get us out of our comfort zone. Sometimes we get so comfortable doing what we always do. We like that. And when change comes, we get 
uncomfortable. We get upset. And so God changed the way he was going to lead them. And no doubt some of them probably got a little uncomfortable. And so I'm sure you have a comfort zone you like to follow and do things the same way all the time. And yet God sometimes brings a change that we may trust him. It causes us to keep our eyes upon him and trust him in the midst of the change. But the second reason he told them to stay back, not only because of the unfamiliar territory and unaccustomed manner, is to maintain a level of reverence and respect. He told them to stay back to maintain a level of reverence and respect. Why such a distance? Probably to remind them of the sacredness of the ark and the holiness of God it represented. They were to have no casual or careless intimacy with God, but a profound spirit of respect and reverence. God was considered not to be considered as the man upstairs, but the sovereign and holy God of all the earth. Does it ever bother you when someone refers to God as the man upstairs? No, what a lack of reverence. What a lack of respect. My friend, the God in heaven is the God, the sovereign God, the holy God, the creator of the universe. And this is throughout scripture. God did several things to teach his people respect and reverence. Hold your finger right here in Joshua. Go to Exodus, please. Exodus 19. Exodus 19, here God is going to tell them to do something to maintain respect and reverence to the holy God of heaven. Exodus 19. I can remember when I was in Bible college, I was eating in the lunchroom, and a young lady that was there sat across from us and was talking, we were talking about God in heaven, and something that I'm not sure is wrong to do, but to me it lacked reverence. And, you know, when she prayed, she didn't talk to the Father in heaven. She called God Daddy. And, of course, that the word Abba Father means Daddy. And, and I appreciate that level of intimacy she had with God. But to me, it seemed to lower God in a level that it's not due him, calling God Daddy. My friend, he's more than just Daddy. He's the God of the universe. And though we may have a relationship with him, that he's our father or his children, God wants a level of respect towards him. Look in Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. It says, For the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people and sanctify them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. And thou shalt, what? Set bounds unto the people round about, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you go not up to the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall surely be put to death. My friend, God's serious about this. Verse 13, There shall not any hand touch it, for, and he that shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether it be a beast or man, it shall not live. God's trying to teach a, re, a, a attitude of respect and reverence. They were to take a distance, stand back, set a border, and not even touch the mount that God was coming down from. Interesting, look in Psalms 89, verse 7. I believe you're on the screen. It said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them about him. 
to be feared and reverenced. Hebrews 12, 28. So let, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and with godly fear. For God is a consuming fire. So God desires of his people reverence and respect and taught Joshua to keep the distance, not only because unfamiliar territory, unaccustomed manner, but also to show reverence and respect toward God. Number two, number two, we, number one was preparation for the crossing. Number two, the requirements for the crossing. The requirements. Look in, if you would please, in verse five. I notice that there's two things required in order for God to come down and manifest his power and glory to his people. The first one, letter A, is consecration. Consecration. Joshua chapter 3, verse 5. We read this together. Joshua said unto his people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. One of the requirements for God to do something special, miraculous among his people they had to first sanctify themselves. The word sanctify means to be hallowed, to be holy, to be separate. Practically, it means the word of personal cleansing. For for God to come down to miraculous among his people, the people had to set themselves apart wholly unto the Lord to, to, to practice personal cleansing. Now, I want to share with you two things that personal holiness is necessary to have. hope you write it down. Number one is fellowship and intimacy with God. If you desire fellowship and intimacy with God, personal holiness is required on your part. In order for God to come down to his people to do something miraculous in the midst, he told them to sanctify, set themselves apart, make themselves holy for God to come down and do something miraculous. Of course, the miraculous thing he was going to do, he was going to part the Red Sea. And they had to first sanctify themselves. Go with me, would please, to the book of 2 Corinthians. Personal holiness, sanctification on our part is necessary for you and I to have fellowship and intimacy with God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, please. We're going to focus on this point later on in our communion service because we know one thing is required of us to have communion with God is personal holiness. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, please. Look what it says here. Here it's talking about God's people separating themselves from unbelievers. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And he says, I will what? I will receive you. Verse 18. And will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Here he's talking about, not about salvation, but about fellowship and intimacy with God. If we want to have an intimacy, we let God as a father, and he may receive us unto himself to have fellowship with him, we need to come out from among the unsaved, the unclean. Now look in chapter 7, verse 1. The same thought carries on. He says, verse 1 of chapter 7, having therefore these promises. What promises? That I will receive you, that I shall be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons. That relationship. It says, having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us what? Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, 
perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So Christian, if you want to have fellowship with God and an intimate walk with God, we need to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and perfecting holiness. In other words, Joshua said, sanctify yourself. Set yourself apart of holiness unto him, and he'll come down and do wonders among you. James chapter 4, verse 8, I believe on the screen, look what it says. James says, draw nigh to God, and he will what? Draw nigh to you. How do we do that? Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. When he says, cleanse your hands to much your outward behavior, purify your hearts to much inward attitude. So as we draw nigh to God, he will draw nigh to us. What's required of us? Cleansing and purification on our part. So personal holiness is required for fellowship and intimacy, but also it's required for usefulness for, to God. Usefulness to God. How many of you want to be useful to God? My greatest desire that God may use me as he sees fit. And one thing's required in my heart is personal, on my part, is personal holiness. On the screen there, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, look what it says. Paul said, if a man, therefore, what? Purge himself. And the context is purge himself from sin and iniquity. If a man purge, cleanse himself from sin, he shall be a what? A vessel unto honor. Sanctified means set apart. Meat means made ready for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So Christian, if you want to be a vessel of honor to the Lord, set apart unto him, used of him for the master's use, prepared unto every good work, your part to cleanse yourself from impurities. So it, personal holiness is required on our part for fellowship and in, intimacy with God and to be used of God. The second requirement for God to come down. Remember the first one, he said, sanctify yourself. Make yourself holy. That's the first requirement to come down to do something wonderful in their midst. The second one, not only consecration, but faith. But faith. Look in Joshua 3, verse 11. There need to be faith on their part. And look how this was expressed. Joshua 3.11. He said, Behold the ark of the covenant of the Lord, of all the earth passeth over before you into the Jordan. Verse 12. Now therefore, take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, one out of every tribe a man, and it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down above and shall stand upon a heap. Notice it took faith. God said, I'm going to part the water. But what did they have to do first? Had to put the feet in the water. I don't know about you, we're going to see later on the waters were overflowing. It was a time of flooding. It'd be easy for them to be scared that the floods might wash them away. He didn't say, stand back and watch me part. He said, as soon as you put your foot in the water, I'll part the water. It was faith on their part. They had to first do their part, and then God would do his part. So often, God may want to do something for you. How about tithing? So many Christians say, I'm going to tithe when God blesses me. God says, you tithe, then I'll bless you. It takes faith. You set my... Uh, you're tithe, you're apart for him, and watch God bless. 
that in other words, it took not only consecration on the part, but faith on the part for God to do something miraculous. Number three, number three, there was preparation, requirements, now the completion of the crossing. In verse 14, notice God kept his promise. What was his promise? As soon as your feet step in the water, what will he do? He'll part the water. Verse 15, and it came to pass when the people removed from their tents to pass over the Jordan and the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as they that bear the ark will come unto Jordan and their feet of the priests that bear the ark were dipped in the brim of the water. But notice before going any further, God performed this miracle not when the river is drying up, when it was overflowing. He goes on to say, For the Jordan overfloweth all his banks unto the time of harvest. So again, he said, as soon as the priests put their feet in the water, and notice he says the water's overflowing, and it's flooding, that's when he did his miracle. But notice in letter B, God stopped all sources of water to the Jordan. He said in verse 16, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far from the city, Adam, that, that is beside Zeraton, those that came down toward the sea in the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. Notice every source of water into the Jordan River, God stopped it. It was coming in many directions. God stopped all the sources as soon as they put their feet in the water, that God stopped all sources of water. And notice the miracle here. The same thing happened to the Jews in the Red Sea when Moses parted that. The people walked on dry ground. The people walked on dry ground. Verse 17, And the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on what kind of ground? Ground. Dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Now, here's a question How could this miraculous even occur? Do you believe this actually happened? I believe it. I believe it wholeheartedly. God can do that. Now, listen, here's from a commentary. Many insist that this was no miracle since this event was, can be explained by natural phenomenon. They point out that in December the 8th, in 1267, an earthquake caused in the high banks of the Jordan to collapse, damming the river for about 10 hours. Again, on July 11th, 1927, another earthquake uh, near the same location blocked the river 21 hours. Of course, these stoppages did not occur during the, the flood season. Admittedly, God could have employed natural causes such as an earthquake or landslide, and the timing would have made, still made a miraculous intervention. The biblical text does not allow such an interpretation of this event. Considering all the factors involved, it seems best to view this occurrence as a special act of God brought about in a way unknown to man. Listen to these. It's not something that earthquake or uh, landslide caused. Notice the elements of this supernatural event. First of all, the event came to pass as predicted. What did God say? As soon as the priest's feet touched the water, what would happen? They would part. Next, the timing was exact. It, was, it wasn't an earthquake. 
You can't time that. It wasn't a landslide. You can't time that. Just like he said, as soon as the water, so as soon as your feet touched the water, the waters parted. The event took place when the river was at flood stage. The water of the water was held in a place many hours, possibly the entire day, for over two million Jews to cross. The soft, wet, soggy river bottom became dry at a moment's notice. And the river returned immediately as soon as the people had crossed over and the priests came out of the water. My friend, that was God's doing. It was not a natural phenomenon. It was something God did. And when God, God's people did their part, God did his part. So listen carefully before we get ready for communion. By this great miracle, the crossing of the Jordan River at flood stage by a nation of about 2 million people, God was glorified, Joshua was exalted, Israel was encouraged, and the Canaanites were ter terrified. God was preparing the people in, in the, uh, Canaan for the Jews to come their way. And we know from last week when the uh, woman, the uh, prostitute, allowed the thieves, I mean the two spies to stay in her house, they were terrified when they heard what God did to part the Red Sea. And now God parts the Jordan River again, to bring terror to the enemies of Israel in the promised land. Now, if you would please turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Ask the uh, couple of men come forward to be praying for the elements. 1 Corinthians 11. Now, many of you know this verse. We use it every time we have communion. You may just want to listen and you can turn with me. Do you remember what was required on our part to have fellowship and intimacy with God? It was holiness. Personal holiness required to have fellowship and intimacy with God. And the same is true in communion service. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you would skip down to verse 27. He said, Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28. So, he goes on, but... Let a man, what? Examine who? Himself. So let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation, means judgment of God to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we're chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. So what does God require of us to have this special time of intimacy with the Lord? It requires that we would examine ourselves. And again, notice it's not examine your neighbor. We're so good about examining each other, aren't we? I don't like the way that person dresses. I don't like the way that person looks. I don't like the Bible that person carries. So we examine others. But the Bible says don't let us examine each other. Let a man examine who? Himself. So as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we're going to pause a moment and give you time to examine yourself and ask the Lord to examine you also. Because the Bible says if you come to the Lord's Supper unworthily, that means with known sin in your life, you will actually bring the judgment of God upon you. So does God take this seriously? Yes, he did like he did when he come down to Mount Sinai. If they were to touch it, they were to die. Now, my friend, God may not strike you dead, but however, he would judge you. It said, for this cause, many were weak and sickly. In fact, many were sleep. 
I mean, many have died if we would judge ourselves. So let's take a few moments as we prepare for the Lord's Supper to basically to examine ourselves, to ask God to search your heart and try you to see if there'd be any wicked way in you. If God brings something to your attention that's not right with him, it may be an attitude, it may be a thought, it may be jealousy, it may be anger, it may be whatever it is that God brings your attention, I encourage you. Scripture said if we confess our sin, he's what? Faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse. So let's take a few moments to prepare ourselves to have this special intimacy time with the Lord by examining ourselves, and if need be, judge yourself that he will not have to judge you. So let's bow together, please, and take a few moments to examine ourselves and make sure that our lives are right with God and nothing would hinder our fellowship with him during this time of communion. Heavenly Father, we saw the importance of your people of showing reverence and respect to God on how you told your people to stand back. You told your people not to come to the place where you come down. In order for you to do wonders among your people, you first required them to consecrate, to sanctify themselves, to set themselves apart unto you, a life of holiness. And Father, it's our desire during this communion service to have a special time of intimacy with you. And Lord, we know that sin will hinder that from happening. In fact, sin, known sin, will bring your judgment upon us. And Father, so we now want to examine ourselves. We want to make sure nothing in our life is displeasing to you, that nothing is there that you're not happy or pleased with. And Holy Spirit of God, which lives inside of us, if there's something we may not be aware of, something that we are overlooking, Lord, God of heaven, please bring that to our attention. It's our desire that nothing will be in our lives to displease you. So, Lord, whatever it is you bring our attention, we will confess it and forsake it that we might have your mercy. And, Father, we ask for cleansing, that nothing in our lives would hinder our fellowship with you. Perhaps this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, if you would take your little cup that you may have, it's in the uh, chair in front of you in the rack. You first take the little wafer from the bottom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 23, Apostle Paul shares with us something he received from the Lord about the Lord's Supper. Verse 23, he said, I said, For I have received the Lord, that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he's betrayed, took bread, and when he given thanks, he brake it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me.
Let's pray. Dear Lord, we do thank you that your son died on the cross. Lord, in agony, and um, Lord, the shame, and all for us. Lord, we thank you for, for that, that we can ask your forgiveness of our sin. And Lord, be forgiven because of, of your son. We thank you for that. We love you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Bless you and pray in your name. That small wafer is representative of the blood, the body of Christ, how it was broken for us. Now we approach the juice, if you'd get that ready, please. This is symbolic of the blood of Christ that was shed for us at the cross of Calvary. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the blood of Christ is so important, not only for salvation, but constant fellowship with God. In verse 25, it says, after the same manner, also he took a cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is New Testament in my blood, this do is often you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray, shall we? <clears throat> Our Heavenly Father, as we look upon what we've just done, Lord, we realize that uh, you mean business with us, and we ought to mean business with you. So, Father, we thank you for that precious blood and have it shed upon the cross. Many people, Lord, are looking for redemption without a sacrifice. They look for forgiveness without confession and repentance. Many look for salvation through works. But, Father, we know that we can only enter to the gates of heaven through the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we thank you for that blood. Thank you for loving us and shedding your precious blood. We just pray, Lord, that uh, each day, uh, Lord, we remember the high cost you paid uh, to redeem us, to save us, to give us a place in heaven. And so, Father, we thank you tonight for all that you've done for us, for your precious blood that saves us in Jesus' name. <clears throat> 